The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Father, tonight I'm, I'm thankful, God, for your church, your body, Lord, that we get to gather as a family and look into your word. And God, I know um, myself and a lot of people in here probably tonight are feeling sort of under the weather, maybe tired, maybe frustrated, maybe sleepy. Um, God, but I just pray that supernaturally, Holy Spirit, you would just breathe on these words. God, that you would take the dead, dry bones that I would utter from my dead and sinful heart, God, and that you would breathe life into them. God, that you would awaken our minds. As sleepers, we would rise from our slumber and be awakened and aware of the life that you have and the truth that you want to give us, God. So, Lord, we love you. We invite you, would you teach us tonight, in Jesus' name, amen. You guys can grab a seat. If you'll allow me to fill in the blanks a little bit, I uh, picture it being probably the afternoon in the Middle East in Israel, sun begins to go down behind the mountain range and Um, we see a young Jewish man walking out of a synagogue on his way home. Just a pretty normal day. He just spent some time with his uh, religious counterparts, um, studying and discussing the scripts, the uh, the law, the Torah together. And as he's on his way home, he begins to have a little bit of a an inner dialogue. He, he looks off into the distance and he sees his home. He notices that his roof actually sits higher than the other roofs. Um, because he was actually a wealthy young man. This wasn't just a normal young man. This wasn't just an everyday Jewish young man. This young man was actually very special and set apart in many ways. He was very wealthy. He was very affluent. He was very smart. Uh, he was a, a great businessman. And, and not only that, he was, he was very, in many respects, very religious and very attentive to the law of God. He spent most of his time studying the scriptures in synagogues with other young Jewish men. He was the guy that you wanted to know because he had connections. He was the guy that you wanted to know because uh, you knew he was going somewhere. The one that was successful, the one that did things well. As this young man is, is walking uh, home, he, he has this inner dialogue with himself. You see, there's this question that's been bothering him, this question that's been nagging at him in the back of his mind. And, and that is that even though he knows he spent the majority of his life pursuing holiness and pursuing right, rightful living according to the law, even though he knows he spent the majority of his life doing what's right and, and, and being successful in business in different areas, he has this nagging question in the back of his head, and that is, is it enough? Is it enough? Yes, you've studied the law. Yes, you've lived in a good manner. Yes, you've been successful. Yes, you've worked hard, but this young man can't push down this question that continually rises up. Is it enough to get into heaven? As he's walking home, he sees a crowd of people gathered over to the left, and he he sort of gazes over, and as he peeks over the heads of the crowd, he notices a man. He notices a man that he's seen before, a familiar man, a rabbi, a teacher named Jesus. Um, He knew about this Jesus. He'd heard about this Jesus. He'd been uh, actually preaching and teaching for some time and healing sick uh, people in his area. And there was something different about this rabbi. This young man knew there was something unique about this rabbi because he didn't just speak the truth of other rabbis. 
He didn't just regurgitate truth that he learned. This rabbi spoke as, if, as though he had authority. He spoke as though he was the source of truth, as though he was the source of life. And this young man, I can imagine him thinking in his head, maybe he can answer my question. My question as to whether I've done enough in order to go to heaven. So as he begins to walk up to Jesus, the crowd begins to part naturally because he's a man of importance. People begin to notice him and people begin to look at him. And it doesn't take long before mid-sentence, Jesus' attention is caught by this young man walking towards him. Instantly, Jesus' eyes are drawn to him, and this young man is caught off guard as he notices that this rabbi, this teacher, this Jesus is not looking at him, but he's actually looking through him and into him. He's not looking at his eyes, he's looking into his eyes, into the deepest parts of his heart. And this young Jewish man feels like, for a moment, like this rabbi knows him better than he knows himself. (laughs) And he thinks, surely this man, surely this man could answer my question, so... Without another thought, he blurts out the words to Jesus. He says, Master, what must I do to enter into eternal life? And Jesus, in this um, conversation, one of the first things that he does, actually, is to draw this man's attention to the law. He says, obey the law, right? It's exactly what this rich young man was hoping to hear. It's what he wanted to hear because he knew that that's what he had invested the majority of his life into was obeying and studying and learning the law of God. So Jesus says, obey the law. And this young man wanting to justify himself, wanting for this rabbi to tell him that he was going to be okay, that he was going to go to heaven, presses more on Jesus. And he asks a follow-up question. He says, what laws? (laughs) Which ones? Which ones am I supposed to obey? And Jesus responds by listing off a few. He says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father, your mother. And then the the biggest and hardest one, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the young man pompously, arrogantly speaks up and says, I've done all these. He's feeling good. He's feeling like maybe this person really will affirm that I am good enough, that I have done enough, that heaven is going to happen for me. And then Jesus says to him something he wasn't expecting. He, he says, he says, one thing that you lack. And I can imagine this rich young man, you know, this, this sort of confident, arrogant, maybe uh, this rich young man sort of thinking, whatever it is, I'll do it. I'll take it. Whatever it is, I'll take it on. And then Jesus drops a ton of bricks on him. <laughs> and he says, one thing have you lacked. Sell everything that you have. Give it to the poor. And then you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. And that was not at all what this rich young man was expecting. And it's not, it's not what it was bargained for. It's not what he wanted to hear. And it says, unfortunately, in the scriptures that, that this young man walked away from Jesus very sorrowful and upset and broken. So what's happening in that story? What's happening is, is that Jesus, who is the king of all kings, the eternal God, saw right through the eyes of that rich young man, past his facade of outer seemingly religious morality. He saw right past through the facade that was fooling everyone else, right past through the success in the charisma and all the things that made him successful in life. And Jesus saw cancer in his heart. And that cancer was simply this, that this man was not living according to the law so that he could love God. 
This man was not studying the law so that he could know more about God, but the cancer was that this man was doing everything that he did because he loved himself. He loved himself. And when Jesus asked a simple question and said, if you will, give everything you have to the poor and follow me, he exposed the cancer on this man's heart that this man, even though he appeared very religious, loved, loved, loved his stuff. Loved who, not only his stuff, but loved who he was, loved his position, loved his power, loved his home, loved his authority, loved everything that his money and his possessions gave him. And he was not willing to trade that in for Jesus. It's as though his hands were full of his stuff. And Jesus said, come take my hands and follow me. And he says, I can't because I cannot set down the things that are filling my hands. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus uses money to clearly identify the cancer in the heart of this rich young man. That all that he has to do is draw his attention and ask him to give up something that he values, his lifestyle, his money, his stuff. And instantly he reveals what he cares about. I say all that, and we'll, we'll come back to that in the end, so kind of file that away. But, but I say all that to say that tonight we're going to talk about money. And, and I, I can't think of a whole lot more things that better reveal and elevate the condition of our hearts than our money and our stuff and our position and things of that nature. We're in a biblical worldview series. If you guys have been joining us, um, we've been in it for a little while. We're, we're starting to wind down. And basically, the point of this series is that we would understand the things that make up life and that we would understand them through a biblical worldview. What a biblical worldview means is that we want to see things through the lens of Jesus' truth. Okay, that we want to just not look at money through the lens of what we think and what we feel and what we want, but that we would look at money through a lens, and that lens would be the gospel. That lens would be the Bible, would be the scriptures. So let's get right to work. Um, first of all, what makes money so important? <laughs> Why is money worth talking about? Uh, I don't even really need to explain that. You guys all understand uh, money is a huge part of the world that we live in, is it not? We've heard it said, money makes the world go round. Um, right now, probably while I speak, my phone is probably paying a bill and I don't even know about it. Um, our cards get swiped multiple times throughout the day. Everything that we enjoy, everything that we eat, everything that we do primarily can be traced back to and rooted back to money. Uh, money is part of the society and the world that we live in. But the first thing that we have to understand before we can really get to the heart of tonight, what I want to say tonight, is that money, you cannot think of just paper. When you think about money tonight, as we talk through this and look at the scriptures, you can't just think of it as paper. You can't think of it as the numbers in your bank account, and you definitely can't think of it as just the liquid cash flow that you have. Okay, Because most of us in this room would probably say, I don't have a lot. All of my money pays bills, right? We have to think of our money as more. Listen, money is not just bills, and it's not just paper, and it's not just numbers on our, on our uh, U.S. bank app or whatever. Money represents lifestyle. Okay, money represents lifestyle. That means that everything that we do and enjoy is traced back to money. Okay? I remember uh, talking to a district manager when I worked in retail, um, and uh, he, was, he was a non-Christian, non-Christian guy, real business-oriented, but he cleared some things up for me, actually. As a, as a younger guy, I was trying to sound really spiritual to him, and I, he was asking me about my, what, what I, my ambitions for the future and things, and I said... Um, you know, I don't really care about money. I don't, I don't want to live my life for money. I don't want to pursue money. And um, what he said was very insightful. He's like, yeah, you may not care about money, but you care about your lifestyle, right? 
And he's like, your money represents your lifestyle. You say you don't care about money, but you care about having a bed to sleep in. You care about having a car to drive to work. You care about having a car that won't break down. I care about living in a safe place so I don't have to worry about my wife. Um, I, I care about being able to buy diapers for my kids. I care about having food on my table. I care about being able to get my coffee in the morning or be able to go to a, uh, a restaurant with my family. Those things are all important to me, and those are all money. Does that make sense? Like, those all represent money. So it's foolish and ignorant, honestly, for us to say as Christians, oh, we don't care about money. We don't love money. The reality is, is we do, and it's more clearly seen when you recognize that everything that we enjoy physically is related to money. It's all money. It's all um, finance. Now, Jesus makes a huge deal about money, and not just Jesus, but the whole Bible. This might blow your mind, but the Bible actually has 2,350 verses about money. 2,350 verses about money and finance and possessions, things of that nature, treasure, if you will. The oldest people in society have had money, right? Even in agrarian societies, before we had actual um, currency and cash flow, people would trade their goods. People would trade the things that they had, um, that they had grown, the things that they had made. Jesus talks about money more uh, than any other topic in the New Testament except for the kingdom, okay? And the two are very closely Related. Uh, overall, in the Bible, money is talked about more than faith and prayer combined. Is that shocking? More than faith and prayer combined. Money is obviously something that the Bible has a lot to say about. I'll be honest, I had, did not have to look far to find content and scriptures um, to, to look at for this teaching. It, it was, there was so much that I really had to pick and choose. The question is, before we get into the meat of this, the question is, what, what determines how we think about money? Okay, so if we can determine that money is just part of life, we can't get away from it. Money represents all of our things, all of our lifestyles, all of the, the things that we do and enjoy. We have to think about what determines um, the way that we think about money. Something that was kind of helpful, I, I read in a, a book by uh, Randy Alcorn about, about money. is he, he, he gave this analogy, this example. I'll share it with you. Uh, so let's say you're, you're, a, you're a pastor or you're a, you're a biblical counselor of some sort, okay? And you, uh, you have two appointments in the morning. Okay, so your first appointment comes in, um, and it's an older woman in your church. She's, she's 70 or 80. She's very poor. Um, she's living off of Social Security, and, and she lives in a, in a small trailer. Her kids take care of her, things like that. She barely gets by, okay? She sits in your chair, and you say, oh, how are you? How's everything going? And, and, and she says, um, you know, things are good. I'm blessed, whatever. But uh, this month has been hard. I don't have a lot of money. I'm not sure how I'm going to feed um, myself and whatever, and I have $20 left for this month. I could go get some food to get through, but I really feel the Lord impressing my heart to give that $20 away. Okay, now how would, how would I, okay, 26-year-old millennial Sam pastor, uh, Western American person, how would I respond to that? I would probably say, no, 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 no. Go get yourself some groceries, okay? Go get yourself some groceries. Don't Give it away. I want, I, I, God knows your heart. He gets your heart, but go get some groceries, okay? Then my next meeting comes in, and it's, it's, a, it's a guy in his 50s, okay? He's a farmer that goes to the church. And, um, cool guy. We're, we're good friends. We go way back. He comes out and talks to him in a while. I say, hey, how's it going? How's everything? He's, the farm is great. He took it over from his dad, right? Um, business is great. You know those old barns that my dad made that we've been stuck with that, that the critters get into, and I have a hard time storing uh, any of the grain in, well, actually, we're going to tear those, those barns down because I've made enough now that we can rebuild bigger ones, better ones. And, and what that means is, is that I'm going to be able to go from making 60000 a year to making 150000 a year, which is, so, which is so cool. And that means I get to retire early. It means I get to buy that RV I've wanted, and we get to be, we 
can begin traveling and, and things like that. It's going to be great. How would I react to that? I'd say, right on. Praise the Lord. That's encouraging. Good for you. Yeah, I, mean, I wish I could do that too, man. That'd be, that, that would be my natural reaction. Now, there's nothing wrong about building new barns. There's nothing wrong about, about, about telling someone that they should spend their $20, $20 on groceries. But my point is, follow me on this. My point is, is how much of our thinking on money is actually based on what Jesus said? And how much of it is based on what our capitalistic, joy-obsessed, um, money-obsessed culture in the West that we live in? Because Jesus encountered two situations exactly like those. And what he said was completely different than what I would have said. Isn't that interesting? He saw a woman give her the last two mites, and yet he praised her for it. He made her an example of faith, right? And then at the same time, he gives this example, this parable of this uh, farmer who makes bigger barns and begins to store up wealth so that, that he can live a more plush, plush lifestyle. And Jesus actually condemns it. Isn't that interesting? My point is, how much of what I do and think about and say and even give counsel for in money is actually because of Jesus, and how much of it is just because I'm an American, okay? Uh, no, no, track with me, okay? We're, we're going to work through some of this stuff. Um, Randy Elkhorn gives another fantastic example. He says, you know, I, I don't want a book that just tells me how to get down the river. I want a book that tells me what, where the river ends, because if there's a waterfall at the end, I want to know that it's there. Okay? And what happens is we think about so much about how should we invest our money, how should we live with our money, how should we uh, be good with our money, things. But, but what Jesus often tells us is, here's what's at the end of the river. Okay, watch out for this. Here's the waterfall. Here's the pitfall. Okay, so it's not just about making money. We need to understand not only the purpose of money, what is money, but we also need to understand, um, as Christians, what should our worldview on money be, Okay. Now, I'm going to say this, too, just, just parenthetically. If you guys, on your seat, you've got a little flyer uh, for a financial peace um, university that's coming up in January. Um, Tyler, are you back here? Will you raise your hand? Um, Tyler, Tyler's back here, the good-looking guy with the beanie. Um, uh, that was a freebie. Um, if you guys are interested in more of the nuts and bolts of how to be good stewards as Christians, which is a huge, by the way, huge as we talk about part of the scriptures, if you want more tools practically, um, I've, I've gone through some of this financial peace stuff. It's, it's fantastic. And Tyler is an amazing guy. Um, good conversation. It's a great class. So contact him. I'm not going to get into the bolts of how to spend, how to save, how to anything. I just want to stay big picture. But if you guys are interested in that, sign up for that. Call Tyler. It's going to be here at Heritage. It's going to be a Heritage event in this room, actually. And it'll be great. But for our purposes um, tonight, here's what I want to do, okay? And that was a long intro. Don't worry. Uh, my voice is only going to make it for 10 more minutes. So... Um, Here's what I want to do for, for tonight. I just want to try to answer three questions quickly. Okay, three questions. And I think these three questions are going to get us where we need to go um, in, in what the Lord might want to say tonight concerning money. I did a focus group with some guys that were, were um, gracious enough to get up at 6 in the morning on Black Friday and do, uh, have some conversations about money so I could learn. And I think from that group, um, these three questions probably will answer most of what, what uh, all of us are maybe asking. The first question is, how much should I make? Okay, how much should I make? Uh, the second question is, how much should I keep? And the third question is, how much should I give? Is that simple enough? Okay, so that's just going to be a quick framework for us. We're going to work through that. So number one, how much should I make? There's a really cool tension uh, in scriptures, as I've learned, as I studied this week. There's, a, there's this insane tension in the Old Testament and the New Testament between how we should spend, how we should live, how much we should make, how much we should give. Um, when you read the Old Testament, a lot of it, seemingly emphasizes saving. A lot of it emphasizes stewardship. A lot of it emphasizes investing and things like that. 
Um, and you look at the New Testament, you almost see somewhat of a different message, which is really interesting. By the way, the whole Bible, the whole Bible puts generosity at the top of the ladder. I mean, every verse is generosity, generosity, generosity. Every verse in the Bible, absolutely. But there is an interesting tension between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we find verses like this, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part of everything you produce. Then he will fill your barns with grain and your vats will overflow with good wine. Or uh, Proverbs 14, 23, wealth is a crown for the wise. The effort of fools yields only foolishness. Proverbs 13, 22, good people leave an inheritance to their grandchildren, but sinners' wealth passes to the godly. So Old Testament gives a lot of practical wisdom even on, on how to, to be good stewards, how to invest, how to, how, to, how, to, how to save, things like that. Then we get to the New Testament, and Jesus, okay, God himself, Jesus, the one that is the perfect man, the holiest man, the, the man that is our perfect example, the one we're trying to be sanctified to be like, is homeless, quits his job to go maraud around with 12 guys um, and tells them all to quit their jobs. And, and if I can say this, practically mooches off of people. Uh, maybe that's the bad word, but, but basically receives money from other people in order to do the ministry. He's homeless. He doesn't have a savings account. He gives everything that he has in three years of ministry. Now, this is our perfect example of a human. So it's really kind of a weird tension in the Bible that we find that there's, there's lots of verses about good stewardship and about investment, and there's also all these verses about that Jesus even proclaims, like this one, Matthew 6, 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. This is sort of the mantra that Jesus brings so often about money that we should get rid of it. We should give it. That we should invest it. That we should live now, not for later, right? Um, super interesting tension. Now, the first thing I want to point out in this question again, how much should I make, is that money, this is obvious, but how, that money is amoral. Okay, money is, in and of itself is not evil. Okay, would you guys all agree with that? What did Jesus say? He said, not, not money is the root of all evil. He said, money, he said, the love of money is the root of all evil. We've talked about this in every single one of our biblical worldview series um, topics. Money in and of itself is not evil. Okay, so we can't demonize money. And we also can't demonize being rich. Okay, we cannot demonize people that are rich. We're, there are people in this church that go here that are wealthy, that are well-off, and they're some of the most godly people that I know. There are plenty of examples in the Old Testament and the New Testament of men that were rich and were godly, men that were wealthy. For instance, Solomon, okay? Uh, Solomon was a bonehead in a lot of ways, but um, he was also supposedly the wisest man and the richest man, okay? Joseph uh, was this rags-to-riches story, right? The little brother that got sold into slavery, and then all of a sudden he, he's, he's basically ruling over the Pharaoh's house um, assets, uh, Abraham was rich, if you know that or not. Abraham was rich. He had many servants. He had many livestock. He had many, uh, many things, many possessions. In the New Testament, we hear about guys like Joseph of Arimathea. If you guys remember him, he was the one that donated his tomb to Jesus. That tomb was a wealthy man's tomb. Okay? Jesus never would have been able to afford that tomb. It just wouldn't have happened. Uh, in, in, in Luke, Dr. Luke writes, oh, oh, most excellent Theophilus, thanking this man named Theophilus for funding, basically, the research of Luke, okay? So obviously, um, there was people that had money that were generous that were actually funding a lot of the ministry, even in the New Testament. Uh, and then the, the obvious example, God is rich, is he not? God himself is rich. 
He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, okay? He owns everything. He is filthy, stinking rich. God owns and has everything. So being rich is not evil. Money is not evil. And, and let me say this, business and even capitalism in certain ways is not evil, okay? Building a business, being successful, being a salesman, um, growing an industry is not evil, whatsoever. There's an interesting story I can't get into even about a shrewd manager that Jesus gives where he actually says that we would do well in the kingdom to be more shrewd. We would be be well in the kingdom to actually put more thought into how we do things. Um, There are people that are very good at business and very good at earning money that are very generous and very, very important to the kingdom of God. Um, It's just the reality. Uh, It's important that we just think of money as a tool. It's a, it's a tool. It's something that gets, uh, can, can get a job done. So um, how much should I make? The answer to that question is make as much as you can. <laughs> okay? Make as much as you can. If it's done honestly, if it's done righteously, it's done in a way that is outstanding or upstanding, make as much as you can. But the trickier part, the stickier part, the part that's going to be harder for me to answer, the part that you may not be happy with my answer, is the next two questions. Okay? Or the next one specifically, how much should I keep? Okay? You can say, make as much money as you want, but the question is, how much of that do I spend on myself? How much of that do I, do I invest in my own comfort? How much of that do I invest? Isn't that even just a Western question in the first place? I mean, there's no, there's no farmer over in Africa thinking, how much should I spend on myself? He's feeding his kids and, and buying grain for the next year or whatever it is. Uh, but in the West, we have this question as Christians, how much do I spend on myself? You know, when, when my wife and I look at our budget, um, we, we set money aside to spend on ourselves. We have, we have, everyone does it. We have spending money, you know, money to get a coffee in the morning or whatever it is to go to a movie um, with my daughter or, or whatever. So how much should I keep? This is the tough question. I think the helpful, uh, maybe secondary question to ask regarding this, how much should I keep, is does your money, I'm sorry, do, do, you, do you have money or does money have you? Do you have money or does money have you? Do you have possessions or do possessions have you? Do you have stuff or does stuff have you? We have this tendency, I think, to think about money as being freeing. If we have more money, if I have more possessions, it somehow frees me up. But it's really not true, is it? Um, think about hobbies. You know, I love hobbies. You know, hobbies are fun, but the funny thing about hobbies is they cost a lot of money. The more hobbies you have, the more gear that you need. So I love running because I just buy a pair of shoes and I'm good, you know. But if I want to golf, I want to paintball, if I want to surf, I want to snowboard, I got to buy all of this gear. And I got to store it somewhere. It's amazing how, how easily we, we can think that money can bring freedom, but it really doesn't. A bigger house brings more upkeep. It brings uh, a bigger mortgage. It brings more lawn to, to mow. Right now I have no grass to mow. It's fantastic. Um, the more money that you make, the more the government takes. The more that you're responsible to be taxed on. Um, I remember watching a documentary about these football players uh, that, that get recruited, you know, when they're like uh, 18 years old and they've never gotten a paycheck in their life. <laughs> Most of them just live in poverty, you know. They get recruited and then they get this signing bonus for millions of dollars and they don't even know what to do with it. And their life goes from being simple to chaotic because they have people taking advantage of them. They blow it all, put it all, they gamble it all, or they buy it all in cars. It's, it, it's just their life is insane. And they, by the time they're 30, they, they actually owe, they have more debt than they can handle. It's, it's amazing. They take these, these poor kids and give them a million dollars and their life just goes to pot. I mean, it's horrible. It completely ruins their life. So we have to get out of that mentality, first of all, that, that having more is going to somehow make our lives better. Ecclesiastes 5.11, uh, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. 
What advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? So Solomon's saying that you can make more, but the reality is that you're just going to increase more. Um, just kind of the way it is. Uh, I don't know if you guys noticed this, but I noticed that no matter what my wife and I make, our lifestyle always just seems to so quickly creep to that amount. Do you notice that? You get a raise and you think, oh, great, this is, this is awesome. Now we, can, now we can finally start saving. Now we can finally start thinking, like, having a little bit of a cushion there. We're not living, like, scraping by paycheck to paycheck. You get a raise and within a month, all of a sudden, you feel like you're right back where you were. It's so interesting. But this begs the question as Americans, how much is enough? How much do we allow our lifestyle to directly reflect what we make? Randy Alcorn says this. He says, too often we assume that God has increased our income to increase our standard of living when his stated purpose is to increase our standard of giving. What he's saying is is that we think when we get a raise that, that God is just saying, hey, go be more comfortable. Go spend more money on yourself. When in reality, what God may be doing is giving us opportunity to be more generous. So we have to think about this question, um, how much do we spend? Now listen, guys, this is the interesting thing. I don't know about you, but I'm so quick to let myself off the hook on this. So quick to let myself on the hook, and here's why, off the hook. And here's why, because I don't think I'm rich. I think of myself as lower middle class, and, and, and when I think about my finance, I don't feel like I need to worry about greed, right? That's the sin I don't need to worry about. Tim Keller, he was talking about how he did this sermon series um, called The Seven Deadly Sins and how he promoted it, kind of like we did with this, where this week we're going to talk about this subject, and now we're going to talk about that subject. And, he, and his wife was like, so did you promote the week that you're doing greed? And, and he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she said, watch, your attendance will be the lowest for that one about greed. She said, not because people are afraid of being convicted, but because people don't think they have a problem with it. It's like one of the least talked about subjects in America is greed, which is really funny because we are filthy rich. We are filthy rich. But the funny thing is, is none of us read these verses with any, uh, with really any conviction or any um, need to really think about or pray about these verses because we just assume that that's not us. We just assume that that's not us, but in reality, we are rich. Listen to this. If you made only $1,500 last year, anyone make $1,500 last year? Okay. Uh, yeah, there's some people lying in here. $1,500 last year, okay? Everyone made fifteen. Okay. If you made $1,500 last year, you are the top 80% of the world, okay? Okay. Um, if you have sufficient food, decent clothes, live in a house or apartment, and have reasonably reliable means of transportation, that doesn't even mean you have a car. It just means you can ride the bus, then you are among the top 15% of the world's wealthy, okay? Um, this one's even crazier. If you have any money saved, a hobby that requires some equipment, a variety of clothes in your closet, and two cars in any condition, that means one of them doesn't have to run, and live in your own home, you are in the top 5% of the world's wealthy, okay? Top 5%. If you own a home, if you have more than three pairs of pants to wear, you have a little bit of money in your savings account. You're in the top 5%. Now, I don't say that to say that, that we need to all feel guilty and, and, go, and go feel horrible about ourselves, but I do say that we need to stop as Christians assuming that these verses don't apply to us because we're not rich, because we are. When the Bible is talking about rich, it's talking about us. Quit assuming that it's talking about Donald Trump, okay? Donald Trump is the ultra-wealthy. Most of the examples in the New Testament would be way closer to home for the middle class, what we would call the middle class in America, Okay, and way less the ultra-wealthy that we're thinking of or picture in our head. Now, before I go too far down that road, let me just bring some clarity. Um, in Christianity, it seems like 
there's two different camps when it comes to money, at least uh, on the extreme ends, okay? Uh, the first one is the poverty theology. Anybody ever heard of poverty theology? Okay, this is where people get up and read statistics just like I did, um, but then they don't, they don't bring a balanced gospel-centered um, approach to it. They get up and say, so, as Christians, we would be more spiritual if we had nothing. Okay, the poverty theology says that we should all uh, be homeless, that we should all be on the mission field, that we should all not have jobs. I, I used to get in arguments all the time when I worked at a church in Bend with this homeless guy that was my age that would come in, and he would just heckle me, um, and, and it made me so mad because he called me, uh, he called me like that. They said I was being less spiritual by having a job, when in reality, he was living off the government programs I was paying for with my taxes. It drove me insane. I'm like, hey, you know that breakfast you got this morning? I paid for that, Okay. Um, so it, it drove me crazy, but this poverty theology that somehow that you're more spiritual if you're poor is not true. Okay, it's not true. This poverty theology thing is, is, is absolutely not true uh, for a few reasons, scripturally, just to, to combat that. Number one, the disciples still had stuff, okay? When Jesus called the disciples, uh, he didn't call them to sell everything. He actually just called them to leave everything. Uh, and actually, when you, when you see stories about Jesus going across the Galilee in a boat, whose boat do you think that was? It was probably the disciples, they probably still had their goods. They probably still had their houses. They probably still had their homes. He called them to leave it for, for, for a season to go and to be um, in ministry. Only certain people in the New Testament were called to give everything that they had. So this concept that if we're, we're poor, we're somehow more spiritual, is totally not true at all. If, every, if everyone was poor, no one would eat. Okay? If, everyone didn't, if no one worked, then no one would eat. That's just the reality of it. The other end, the other camp, okay, so you have poverty theology. The other camp is prosperity theology, okay? That means that if you have faith, you will be rich. If you give to God liberally, God will give to you liberally. So that means that if you give your last $2 to Benny Hinn or Kenneth Copeland, then, then, then all of a sudden you're going to be rich. And if you're not rich and if you're not healed, then that's because you didn't have enough faith. Okay, it's crippling and it's such false heresy. It's such false gospel. The reality is, is that we are not more spiritual, whether we're poor or more spiritual, whether we're rich. Neither one is accurate. Now, my favorite proverb, and again, trying to answer this question, how much should we keep? My favorite proverb is Proverbs 38 through 9. It says this, it says, remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. You know what he's saying there? He's basically saying, Lord, just give me what is convenient for me. I don't need to be rich, but I also don't want to be poor. So Lord, would you give me just enough to live? That's all that I need. I always try to think about this verse when I think about my finance. I just need, just give me what I need. If, if you give me more than that, Lord, I want to be generous with it. Okay, I want to be generous with it. Listen, uh, John Piper says, big industry and big salaries are a fact of our time, and they're not necessarily evil. The evil is in being deceived into thinking, and I don't know how dated this is, so don't listen to the numbers, but thinking that a $100,000 salary must be accompanied by a $100,000 lifestyle. God has made us to be conduits of his grace, and the danger is in thinking that the conduit should be lined with gold. It shouldn't. Copper will do. Okay, what he's saying is, is that just because you make a certain amount doesn't mean that you need to live like you make a certain amount. And the most concerning thing about my generation, frankly, uh, that I worry about is that all of my friends live like they make more than they do. 
I mean, I have so many friends buying new houses and buying new cars. Um, not that there's anything evil about that, but I, but I see them going into debt. And there's this, there's this concept that, that we have to live like someone that we're not. So it's not even just a matter of, like, we're spending everything we have. We're spending more than we have because we feel this, this nagging pressure, this tension in order to keep up with all of our friends, to buy a house that we can't afford, to buy a car that we can't afford, to buy clothes that we can't afford, to be someone that we're not, to impress people we don't like, right? I mean, that's, that's the, really the reality of my generation in so many ways. It's, it's kind of, it's worrying. It's worrisome. My heart and my prayer is that I would be content with what God has given me. If he sees fit for me to steward a certain amount, that I would steward that amount well. But listen, guys, it's not our money. It's not our money. As a pastor, uh, you know, there's, there's times where, where I purchase things for the church, or I purchase the new equipment, or I purchase the soundboard, or, or whatever it may be. And when I do that, I put very careful thought into how I spend that money. Do you know why? Because it's not my money. It's God's money. Because it's not my money, it's the church's money, okay? So if I'm going to spend that money, I need to be very intentional and thoughtful about spending it in such a way that, that is actually an investment in the church. But yet when I spend my own money, I don't think that way. How is, that any, how is my money any different? It's not my money. I should be just as intentional and just as thoughtful about how I spend my money as I do about how I spend the church's money. Literally, because it's not my money. It's God's money, okay? Um, so... I probably didn't even answer the question, uh, how, how much should I keep, but just some thoughts. Now, here's the really hard question. Here's the question that, that, that I'm totally not going to answer. Um, how much should I give? How much should I give? That's, that's the tough question. Um, if, I, if I were to take a poll right now, um, probably almost everyone in here would say 10%. 10%. That's what, that's what we give. That's what I was taught when I was raised. That's what uh, the Bible says, right, is that we should give 10%. And yes, in the Old Testament, it talks about giving uh, a 10%, but I, wanna, I just want to spend just a few minutes just pushing on that a little bit tonight, um, not with the intent of trying to get you to give more. This isn't the pastor getting up here. Um, you know, I don't get a raise if you guys give more. I don't. So, um, but this isn't me trying to get up here and give you to give more. This isn't me trying to get up to give you, have you give less. This is actually just me pushing on and saying, is that a gospel principle? Is this 10% idea a gospel principle? And I think in many ways it's helpful. I think for my wife and I even, it's a good place to start. And say, okay, well, we'll just make sure we're at least doing this, um, and then we'll, we'll go from there. But here's the thing that worries me about the 10% thing, okay? Here's the thing that worries me about the 10%, is it just feels so much like the old covenant. It feels so much like the old covenant. And here's why, because it's, it, it can so easily and so quickly not be like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful to be able to give God 10% of what I have now. It, it turns into this thing of, if I give God 10%, if I give God 10%, then I, I instantly feel like I'm, I'm generous. If I could just give him my 10%, then, then I instantly feel like I'm all of a sudden generous. And, and I, what I really want is I just want someone to tell me what to do and I'll do it, okay? I want, I, personally, I want someone to just tell me, Sam, give this amount and then you're good. Why do I want that? Because I'm hardwired for the law. Does that make sense? I'm hardwired for rules. I was designed for rules. It's part of sin. It's part of the fall. It's, it's why... People love religion and have a hard time with the gospel, okay? It would be easier for me to just, for just someone just to tell me, hey, 10%, do that, and then you're generous. That's great. But the reality is of the gospel is that it's not that simple. It's not that simple. Both prosperity and poverty theology reek of the law for me, okay? To say that you're more spiritual if you're poor, that's the law. 
That's to say that if, if I'm poor and I give everything away, then God loves me more. If I go sell everything I have right now, then, then I'm, I'm somehow justified. That's the law. And then on the other end, to say that, well, if I have a lot of money, I'm justified in that because it shows that I have good faith. No, that's the law too. So neither one of those are grace. Neither one of those are the new covenant. Here's the scary part about the 10%, okay? Just to be honest with you guys, is that my heart, my wicked, my sinful heart says this. It says, I will gladly give 10% to God if that means he keeps his hands out of my 90. Okay? That's the scary part, is that, 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 that can so easily be, look, God, I gave you mine. I gave you the 10%. That's yours. Now, now I'm justified to do whatever I want with the 90%. I tithe this month, so now the rest of my money's mine. So if I want to go spend it all on me, if I want to go blow it all and be irresponsible or whatever it is, then, then that's cool because I gave you your 10%. That's yours. I bought you off, okay? I paid for, for you to get your 10%. Now I get my 90%. And I think that's the part that sketches me out about the 10% thing. It feels like an old covenant principle. The issue is an issue of lordship. It's that we don't want God to have control of 100% of our money, do we? We don't want him to have 100% of our money. Think back to our story, the rich young ruler. This man comes up to Jesus, right? And you don't think this man was generous? If he lived according to the law like he said he did, that he meant he probably gave more than 10%. He was probably more generous than we were, are. He was probably very generous. But was his generosity because he loved God, or was his generosity so that he could feel good about himself? Because when Jesus pressed on him on that and said, I don't just want lordship over your 10 or 15 or 20% or 30%. I want lordship over all of you, everything that you own. It hit a nerve. And he walked away sorrowful. He couldn't do it. He couldn't handle it. Now, I'm, I'm definitely not going to say that we should all go out of here and sell everything that we have. But my question for you tonight is, would you? That's the scary question. Would you? How much? And not just your money, not just the number in your bank account right now, but would you sell everything? Your comfort, your, your, your clothes, your car, your job, your position. Would you give up everything for Jesus? That's a tough question. And that's not one that I know that I can actually answer until it was actually asked of me. That's a tough question. I would love to say yes. But this man thought he had it figured out. And then when that question came up, he went away sorrowful because he loved his stuff. In reality, a lot of times, I just want to give God his 10 so he gets out of my 90. So here's, here's, my, here's my thought, okay? We know it's not prosperity theology. We know it's not prodigal. Or sorry, we know it's not prosperity theology. We know it's not poverty theology. I want to propose to you something, and that is that we as Christians should be living prodigal theology. Okay, prodigal theology. What prodigal theology is, just explain that. Prodigal theology is, is this, is that if you guys are familiar with the story of the prodigal, this, this young man comes up to his father and says, I, I, I don't want to wait until you pass away to, to take my inheritance. I want my inheritance now. I want my stuff. I want my money. Give it to me now. Okay? Which is basically a way of saying, I wish you were dead. So the dad gives him the money. He goes. He gambles it. He squanders it. He spends it. He lives a life of lasciviousness. He, get, he just blows his money. Totally irresponsible. To the point where he's literally living with the pigs. Okay? You guys know the story. 
he goes, he gets to the point where he's so desperate that he is willing to crawl back to his dad and ask him if he could just even be a servant. Like, God, like, dad, just make me a slave in your house. He expected nothing. He brought nothing. He squandered everything. He comes up the road, and his dad sees him walking up, and what does he do? He lifts up his robes, which was unheard of in that time, and he bolts and runs to his son, clothes him in robes, brings him into his home, gives him the finest feast, gives him money that he did not earn, money that he did not deserve. So here's what, here's what I'd like to propose, okay? We, we don't want poverty theology. We don't want prosperity theology. But we want prodigal theology. And what that means is that we as Christians have squandered so much, not just in money, but time, not just money and time even, but passion and love on things that were not for God. We have invested so much into ourselves, worshiping ourselves, doing things for ourselves. We've given more to ourselves than we've given to God a hundred times over. We are the prodigal son. But yet, we have been given everything, everything, undeservedly. Okay, now this concept of New Covenant, New Testament giving is completely baffling to me. What's the first thing the early church did? They, they gave everything that they had into a common pool. They said, we don't care about our stuff anymore. We just want to take care of each other. Okay, and I know that sounds idealistic, right? We're not going to go do that. But, but okay, what could cause the early church to be so content with, with just Jesus himself that they would be willing to give everything that they had to each other to live in a way? You know what would cause that? Prodigal theology. Where they get that that's them. That they don't deserve grace. That they've squandered. And the reality is, is that's us. Guys, what makes us generous is not just intentionality. It's not just discipline. It's not just making a budget. It's not just sitting down and saying, I, I want to be generous. What makes us truly generous is when we realize how generous God has been to us. When we realize that we deserve nothing, but yet we've been given everything. It changes everything. It changes everything. The rich young ruler could not comprehend this kind of thinking. Do you know why? Because he didn't see Jesus as more valuable than his life. He didn't see him as more valuable. C.S. Lewis said, he who has God and everything has no more than he who has God alone. We can't get any more than God. We've been given everything. We don't know how rich we are. And if we're not generous, then we probably don't get the gospel. If we're not generous, if I'm not generous, then I'm probably missing something. So here's my plea for you guys, okay? I want you to think about this. What, what, did, what would it look like if we actually lived our lives in that way? Where we didn't just say, you know, I, I give my 10%, so I feel like I can do whatever I want with the 90. Again, this isn't a plea to give more than 10. If 10 is what God has called you to give, then give 10. But here's the scary part. The scary part is that you guys and myself need to have an encounter with Jesus about your money, just like the rich young ruler. Because this is the new covenant. The new covenant is not Sam getting up here and saying, give this much. The new covenant is not opening the scripture and saying, Jesus said to give that percent, so I give that percent. That's the law. The new covenant looks like this. God, what do you want me to give? And whatever it is that he puts on your heart, whether it be 100% or 5%, 
or whether it be two mites or 100 mites, whatever it might be, okay, that is what he wants you to give. It's a relationship, and it's kind of scary, isn't it? Because what if he asks for more than you thought that, (laughs) what if he asks for more than you wanted him to? But we need to, as Christians, we need to go home and have a real encounter, a raw encounter with Jesus, just like the rich young ruler, where we say, what do you want me to do with my money, Lord? Where we look at our budgets and say, is this reflective of generosity? Now, not, not, we look at our budgets and say, I would feel a whole lot better and less guilty if we gave more. That's the law. That's the law. Or man, I, I, feel, I feel convicted we should give more because I feel bad. That's the law. No, God has been so generous to us and we want to be generous because God has been generous to us. That's prodigal theology. And I think that applies to all of our treasure too, by the way. Not just our money, our kids, our marriages. Does God have lordship over, 90, over 100% or does he have lordship over 90%? Amen? What time is it? 7.41. Um, Do we have any questions? No questions. Man, I'm such a good teacher. I just (laughs) said everything I needed to say. Um, Well, we got a little bit of time, so um, maybe we could turn on some house music. I'm I'm going to ask you guys to do something um, that might be awkward, so it should be fun. Um, we're actually going to, can we split into groups, uh, twos and threes, and uh, Alex is going to turn some house music on, we'll bring the lights down, um, just for the next five minutes, I would love to split into to groups of two or three, and I would love to pray for each other, so get into your group, say, hey, what's your name, hey, what's your name, pray for the person to your right, pray for them to have insight, and to have wisdom into what it is that um, God might be wanting to do and, and pull um, on their heartstrings. In five minutes, I'll come back and dismiss us. We can go get our kids. Can we do that? Can we spend five minutes in prayer? We're the body. We're the family. Let's pray together. If you don't want to, you can sit. No one's going to judge you. It's totally fine. But let's break into groups. Let's bring the lights down. Let's bring the music up. Let's, let's do some prayer.